0: Welcome to the Retirement Risk Show, the best retirement interviews and advice with Dave Hall. Learn strategies to help you reduce and even eliminate the risks facing your retirement.
1: Hello, and welcome to the show. My name is Dave Hall. We are back again talking about the longest self-imposed period of unemployment most of you will have in your lifetime. It could be 10 years, it could be 20. Heck, it might even be 30 or 40. It is what we call Retirement. If you would like to learn how you can get safely through retirement, go to our website. Here you'll get access to our Shattery Retirement. Risk Live event where we talk about the details that you need to better understand to get to a safe and secure retirement. You also get access to my new book, Getting Safely Through Retirement, where not only do we talk about some of the challenges you'll face, but we also provide the recommendations and those strategies that you need to implement going into your own retirement. For those of you that have been listening to the show for any length of time, you know that we talk about various risks that we face in retirement and some of the challenges we're going through. Today, we're going to be talking about a topic that goes a little bit deeper, maybe six feet deeper, and that is death. We're going to be talking today with uh, Penny Smith. She's a hospice nurse, a TikTok guru, someone who's really helped build the industry and helped us better understand this topic. Penny, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So this is unique for me. We talk a lot about long-term care and the process of people going through the last two or three years of their life, oftentimes not exactly in the way they want to go through it, but we've never got clear into the hospice realm. So talk a little bit first about you, what got you into this industry, and we'll also maybe talk a little bit about some of the social media stuff you're doing.
0: I actually didn't start nursing until I was in my early 40s. I went to nursing school in my 40s. I got into hospice. The short story is my ex-husband's stepmother had cancer and she was on hospice. And I was just fascinated with the nurses. I thought they were extremely smart and compassionate. And I was just really intrigued by the idea of helping people at the end of their life. So that is how I got into hospice. I've been a hospice nurse for almost 18 years. I started with inpatient hospice care centers. So at the bedside, death and dying I moved from that into home hospice case management, and then I went into quality and regulatory, and I currently am a hospice quality manager for a large hospice agency. So I am well-versed in all things quality and regulatory, I've done a lot of education
1: as well. And yeah, a lot of that education has gone online. During the pandemic, I believe, if I understand it correctly, it's kind of when you started doing a lot of your videos. Talk about uh, what led you to doing the videos and what's going on there with TikTok and some of these other platforms.
0: Yeah. So just like many, many people during the pandemic, we were in lockdown and had nothing better to do than to learn about this app called TikTok. And I actually started just watching the videos and then started trying to learn how to shuffle dance. I've always been a bit creative and used to sing in a rock band and, you know, acted in plays. And I thought, oh, this might be kind of fun to do some of these little trends that are on here. My videos didn't really go anywhere. I'm older than the current average TikTok generation. But one day I decided that I would just share a story about an experience I had as a hospice nurse in a hospice care center. And it went viral. And I realized that people really want to hear about hospice and death and dying. And I have been a passionate advocate for hospice and for high quality end of life care, you know, since becoming a hospice nurse. And I just realized it was a fabulous way to educate people, kind of grassroots forum.
1: And uh, years later, it's turned out to be a a huge success on your end. I congratulate you with that because it is a topic that many people often struggle to talk about. And and maybe, in fact, we probably ought to define a little bit what hospice is for some of our listeners. There's probably some of them out there that know what the term is, but really what defines us going from maybe a long-term care facility or a point where even we're living a very normal life into a hospice situation. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. I can start by saying
0: people misunderstand things about hospice. People think that it's just for old people, and it's not. Uh, We have pediatric hospice. Young people die too. So hospice is for anybody who has a life expectancy of six months or less with a terminal diagnosis. So you have to meet eligibility requirements to be on hospice. Most hospice is paid for by Medicare, but it's also covered by Medicaid and private insurance. In order to be a certified Medicare hospice provider, you have to meet the conditions of participation that Medicare puts forth. So any rules that they have for hospice patients apply to all of our patients. We can't just provide a level of care only for Medicare patients and not for other patients. Hospice is not a place. People often think hospice is a place. While there are hospice care centers, The majority of hospice is provided for people in their own homes. We do not do 24-7 care. We support the caregivers, which are usually going to be the family. And that's something that's really challenging for people, especially elderly people. If your patient is 85 years old and his wife is 85 years old, she's the one providing the care. Hospice is only providing some limited care, you know, we have hospice aides that can go in and do bathing a few times a week, or, you know, that kind of care. And then as a nurse, I do education, I do treatments as well as symptom management, but we do not go in the home for 24 seven care. So that's something that people really have to plan for.
1: As you talk about that, Penny, one of the things comes to my mind as we look at this is as the family's getting involved here, for many of them, it's the first time they've ever gone through something like this. And I've got to assume that the patient themselves probably isn't much of a problem for you because there are not a lot they're probably saying or doing that really is outside of the things that you would normally do as a hospice nurse. But from a family standpoint, any recommendations for people that are going through this for the first time of how they can better interact with individuals like you to make the experience not only better on your end as a nurse, but better on their end as a family member that's having to go through this process?
0: Well, I actually think preparing for this is something that should happen before going on to hospice. Everybody should be prepared for their eventual death. You know, most people think that you're just going to one day die in your sleep and that's it. You're just going to drop dead and you're done. And it's usually going to be a progression towards the end of life. People usually start to decline, and then eventually they die. And so during that time, they become less functional, you know, less able to care for themselves. So I think it's really important for people to plan ahead and have a little savings account, you know, your rainy day bank account for being able to hire caregivers, to be able to hire in-home help or to be able to pay for an adult family home or a nursing home an assisted living facility somewhere where the person can go when they can no longer be in their home. To me, that's really more important than what happens after they get on to hospice.
1: Penny, as you look at the percentage of people that you work with, uh, would you say the majority of them, maybe almost uh, 80 or 90% of them would come to you out of some type of other long-term care event? I mean, hey, we had other issues uh, to start with, and now we're at a point that things have gotten Degenerative to a point that we've got to go into hospice, or a lot of people coming to you for the first time saying, We really didn't have any issues until all of a sudden this medical event came up, and I was told I've got less than six months to live and need your assistance.
0: So, Medicare is ranking the diseases for patients. The top disease is cancer. So, most people who are coming onto hospice have cancer. And then I think dementia is next, and then heart disease. So cancer is one of those things where you get it, you might survive it and you might not. And so, yeah, they're not planning for that. They're given a terminal diagnosis and then they're going on hospice. Dementia is a little different because you get your dementia diagnosis and then you're going to live for years with dementia before you even meet hospice eligibility. So, yeah, the majority of our patients were not really planning on being at the end of their life at the time that they find out that they are. It's unpredictable. Yeah,
1: it's interesting you mentioned that. For my father, it was cancer. He ended up with prostate cancer and weren't able to get it. And he passed away and went through a hospice period of time. Now, I was not living in the area, so I wasn't there 24-7 by his bedside. My mother, she ended up on hospice for a short period of time, was having kidney failure at the time. So again, kind of two different situations. My mother knew some of this was coming because of all the issues she'd had. Father, it was very much a surprise. Why do we not talk about this more? Why does it seem to be such a taboo topic? Is it because there's not a lot of resources or is it just because we as people don't really want to discuss death, even though it's such a natural part of life?
0: Yeah. You know, It used to be that life expectancy was shorter. A hundred years ago, life expectancy for a woman was like, I think, 58, and now it's 81. And people stayed in their homes, and they died of natural causes in their homes with their families caregiving for them. People had big families because there was a high mortality rate for children and infants, so they had a lot of kids because they needed replacement kids if you will we didn't have the medical advances that keep us alive for so long and now we do and we've tucked death into hospitals and we keep people alive on you know with artificial means for a long time and we've just gotten into this culture where we just feel like death is a failure You know, if a doctor loses a patient, that's seen as a failure. If a hospital has a high death rate, that's seen as a failure. And so people avoid talking about it because we have created this culture where death is just really this bad thing. We don't want to think about it. I don't want to talk about it. And like you say, the reality is it's it's a normal part of life. It is the end of our life. And... There's no getting away from that. It's inevitable. Nobody's ever gotten out of here alive. But I do think that the reason we have gone to that is because of our advances in medical uh, technology that allow us to, to really keep people alive. Even something as simple as tube feeding. You can keep a person with dementia alive by tube feeding them well past where they would normally die if we just allowed a natural death, but nobody is wanting to let ma have a nice death and slip away quietly. They wanna to try to do everything to keep her here.
1: And what do you find from a individual and family standpoint? The individual is passing away. Most of them, by the time they get through the hospice process, pretty much come to grips with what's going on. I know for family members, definitely not that way many times. So where do you find the individual's mindset being at?
0: Yeah, I have rarely seen where a person who was dying did not get to a place of acceptance by the time death was approaching many times you know they'll come on service and they're they're shocked that they're dying especially if they're young they're scared which is normal they're angry they're sad but once they get over that initial shock and they accept that you know they're facing the end of their life they're actually able to really embrace the life that they have left and, and that's another misconception about hospice is that our patients are imminently dying it's a life expectancy of six months or less. So if you're six months away from death, you still have a lot of living that you can get done in that period of time. And of course, you might have six months, you might have six weeks, you might have six days, you might have a year, two years, you know, we don't really know for sure. But once people get to this point where they're like, over the initial shock of being told that they're dying, then they really are able to figure out what do they want to do now? Like, what am I going to do now? I have this finite amount of time left. What is my bucket list? List. Let me, you know, check the things off my bucket list. Families do have a harder time accepting, but sometimes, you know, they get to a point too, where they're ready. They're kind of ready. They're okay with it. Well, as okay as you can be when you're waiting for your person to die, that's, never a fun
1: thing, but you know. It's definitely a different phase of life as you're going through that. I'm a very spiritual person. Most people that listen to my show know that. And In fact, most people that listen to our show are quite spiritual because uh, they resonate with my philosophies and the things I teach and the things I share. But with that, I'm very strong belief in an afterlife, very strong belief. I'll see my family again and all these other individuals. Do you see with those that are going through this phase, these individuals, that there is more of a connection to the afterlife or to family members maybe that have passed on before them.
0: Yeah. So deathbed visioning is something that is very common and normal at the end of life. And and it's called deathbed visioning, but that's a little bit of a misnomer because people don't necessarily need to be on their deathbed to, to have these visions. They can be two or three weeks out from death, and they can very clearly tell you what they're seeing or who they're seeing. Sometimes people see pets. Sometimes they see relatives. Sometimes they start as shadows and they don't recognize them, but they're not afraid of it. It's like a comforting feeling. And sometimes it's so vivid to them that they, they actually will talk to them or say, I see my wife. You know, I had a patient who told me that his wife he was crying and he was looking in the corner of the room and he said, she's right there. I see her. She's right there. And I said, is she coming to get you? And he said, yes, but not today. She's coming tomorrow. And I was like, oh, okay. So, yeah, that is very common. Now for the patient, that brings comfort because it's like they're being met by these people who they love, who they haven't seen for years, who died. But for the families, sometimes they're a little thrown off by that. And I've had families who said, I think, you know, my mom needs some medication because she's hallucinating. She's seeing people. And I have to explain that's really normal. And, and we meet them where they're at. You know, we explain it, but it is so common that it's in our literature. Like it's something that we look at as a sign that death is approaching. And we ask about, I would ask my patients, have you seen anything out of the ordinary? Like people who have died before you because it kind of helps us to gauge where they are in their dying
1: process. I know you did a TikTok video on it that I was watching where you would ask a lady if she had seen anyone and she at first denies it. And then uh, throughout the story, she ends up saying, yeah, after you had mentioned that it was normal, but then she mentioned their father was in the kitchen. And this is something, again, very familiar with. I've got two disabled children. Most of our listeners know this by this point, but you know, we've got angels around us all the time. I mean, there's no question in my life that there aren't uh, people from the other side helping us get through the day in the process now they're not people I'm seeing every day but definitely feel that the presence of all that as we go through there but definitely as you go through that that end of life cycle it's again people yes it's something we've never experienced yes yes it seems uh, final it seems like everything's coming to an end I think one of the greatest things I've seen from Penny from what you do is that with it can come peace and with it can come the reality that we did have a good life, that we did good things and and that we did the things we are supposed to. And I think one of the things you had brought up to another video I'd watch, I'd like to talk a little bit about, is you talk about a period where someone's going through hospice and then all of a sudden they seem to get better, whether it's for a few minute period of time or for maybe a few hours. Can you talk about that process and what people should look at if that happens?
0: Sure, so that that's something we call the end of life rally or the surge. Recently, the medical community came up with the term terminal lucidity and it's when a person is you know getting close to the end of their life sometimes they might even be unresponsive or minimally responsive and they have a burst of energy and they want to visit and they want to call their friends and they sometimes even want to eat when they haven't wanted to eat anything for a week so all of a sudden they want a meal it usually only lasts a day or less and it's a sign that they're getting close to the end of life so the families always think Oh, he's getting better. He can come off a of hospice. He's not dying anymore. But the reality is they are close to the end of life. And they usually die within about a week after this happens. It's a day or less that it happens. You know, it could be just a couple of hours. It could be a day. But there's no explanation for it. There's some theories about it, why it happens. But there's there's no, you know, we don't test people. But it does happen in about four out of 10 patients. So it's fairly common.
1: But it's these kind of conversations, though, that are so helpful if people would understand this stuff in advance. And if you're coming into it and you already know that something like this could happen and you know the process of, that they go through, you know, one of the other things you talked about in some of your videos I'd also like covers the medications and the impact it's going to have on, on the individuals and sometimes what family members are thinking going on. But the more we can know about the experience, the better off we are. And maybe you can talk a little bit about that. I know one of your other videos talked about the uh, family member saying, hey, this isn't going to hurt them or it's not going to do this to them or you need to do this from medicine side. You're the expert. You know what goes on. You've seen this dozens of times. Want to talk a little bit about that process as well?
0: Yeah. So that is another big misconception about hospice that we give morphine to all of our patients and that it is ultimately what causes their death or it puts them to sleep until they die and that's just not true we do use morphine a lot it's tried and true it's our gold standard for treating shortness of breath it's inexpensive and hospice does not make a lot of money we get a pretty much a per diem a daily rate for all of our patients regardless of what we do for them we don't bill the same way as the ER who will charge you up. 20 bucks for a Tylenol. You know, we don't bill that way. We get a payment it's a daily rate. So it's, we try to use, you know, medications that are, are less expensive. If people can't have morphine for whatever reason, we use other opioids, which are just as dangerous. So one of the things I try to explain is like, people are okay with Percocet. They'll say, oh, I'm fine with Percocet, but morphine, morphine kills, you know, and Percocet is actually milligram for milligram stronger than morphine because it's got oxycodone, which is about one and a half times stronger than morphine. So we don't like just start people on massive doses of morphine. We give them a very small amount. It doesn't take much. They can be a little bit more somnolent when they first take it. Sedation can be a side effect, but that will eventually resolve as they get adjusted to the medication. You know, we're not in the business of killing people. We want our patients to, for one thing, and not that we try to keep people alive. So the hospice philosophy is we do nothing to prolong life, nor do we hasten death. We allow a natural death. But when people say hospice has an agenda of killing their patients, I'm always like, wait, what? We don't get paid when they die. (laughs) You know, like after they're dead, there's no more payment. So it doesn't behoove us to kill our patients. Not that we are trying to keep them alive either. You know, we're just allowing a natural death. You know, morphine is a great medication. It's safe to use. It's been in use for decades, centuries, probably. And it really helps people to be comfortable at the end of life. And oftentimes, you know, I'll say to somebody like, you really want to think about, you know, what is your concern about a person if they are going to be more asleep at the end of life? Is it you want them to be awake so you can interact with them at the risk of them being in pain? Or would it be better for them to be you know, comfortable and sleeping more? Because a lot of times, you know, people are just selfishly kind of wanting their person to be awake because they don't like the idea of letting go of them, which is normal. Fair enough. We love our people. We don't want to let them go, but.
1: Absolutely. Penny, I've directed a lot of this conversation today, uh, which means we've talked about the things that I was curious about, things that I wanted to learn about. Anything as we're wrapping up here that we didn't cover that you'd like to make sure we do cover, things that people should know about that we haven't already addressed?
0: Yeah, I think it's really important for people to know that they don't need a doctor to refer to hospice if they are told that they have a terminal condition and they want to explore the possibility of hospice. If you have a person who has dementia and they're starting to decline and you see that, maybe you go to the doctor, the doctor's not seeing that, they're having a good day and they're, they're less convinced that they're ready for hospice, you can self-refer. You can call a hospice agency and self-refer. Hospice will do the evaluation to determine if they feel like the person meets the criteria to be on hospice. Although hospice has a life expectancy of six months or less, we don't kick people off if they hit that six-month point and they're still alive. We have recertification processes. And as long as somebody continues to meet the eligibility requirement of a life expectancy of six months or less, they can continue to stay on hospice. So sometimes we have people on hospice for years. Uh, It's not really, really common, but it's not uncommon either. So that's important to know. Also, like if your doctor says that you or your person is meeting eligibility requirements or they think they're ready for hospice, don't feel like you want to wait longer because it's going to be giving up if you have them go on hospice. It's not about giving up hope. It's about changing what hope looks like. It's about hoping that a person can have a comfortable, peaceful death in the environment that they choose to be in. Hopefully that's their home with their people around them who they love. So, you know, it's and to avoid going to the ER, being hospitalized, to avoid those types of things that are not going to be as um, conducive to a beautiful natural death, you know, like with people surrounding you in love. So hospice is, we don't want people who are just right at the end of their life because we have so much to offer. We can offer spiritual support, social services, the nurse. The aid that can help with bathing and help to teach the family how to take care of the person as they're declining and they can't get in the shower anymore. You know, that's what we do. And then after the death of the person, we provide grief support services for a year. So, you know, we also care for the family. And that's something that has been a relief to my patients. Often, if you ask a person who's dying, what is their greatest fear? They will say, They're worried about how their family is going to do after they die. That is a legitimate fear that they have. And when I tell them that grief support services is going to provide bereavement for them, you know, care for them, counseling for them for a year after their death, it's a relief for them to know that we're not just going to drop the family like a hot potato. You know, we have professionals that will help support after the person dies.
1: That was very good to know. Yeah, that was not something I was aware of, but really haven't paid attention to it. Again, I wasn't involved in the hospice process with family members and uh, not something that I've spent a lot of time studying myself either. Penny, thank you so much for being with us today. How can our listeners get access to your videos and the information that you're continuing to put out there on social media?
0: I'm on all the social media platforms. I'm on YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, and Facebook. My username is at Hospice Nurse Penny.
1: Okay, thank you very much. Uh, And her videos, some of them got over 5 million views. We're not just talking someone that's out there putting a video together that no one's looking at. She's putting videos together that really help answer the questions, really help people better understand what, what death looks like and helps you better understand what that process is going to be. Listeners, thank you so much for being with us as well today. Come back next week. We'll share some more information to help you better understand what you can do to get safely through retirement. And that's today's episode. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to wherever you get your podcast. The Retirement Risk Show is a production of the Retirement Risk Advisors. Our show was produced by C.R. Talene and Autumn Koenig. If you're a CPA looking for more retirement education, visit retirementriskadvisors.com.